What's Mine and Yours is a multi-layered novel that explores the impact of racism and gentrification within the lives of two families in North Carolina. Tensions rise when a new integration program brings more black students into a predominantly white high school. On this episode of the Vulgar Geniuses podcast, we interview New York Times bestselling author Naima Coster about how difficult childhoods form us and her time spent living in North Carolina, which served as part of the inspiration behind the novel. I'm Denny. And I'm Veronica. Stay with us on the Vulgar Geniuses podcast. Support for this podcast comes from Park Ave CDs, purveyors of new and used vinyl and CDs, clever gifts, books, and more. This year, Park Ave CDs celebrates 37 years. They'll also be celebrating Record Store Day 2021 on June 12th and July 17th. Visit in-store or online at parkavcds.com for details. Are you currently looking for a bookstore that has a great selection of books? Well, Kizzy's Books and More is that bookstore. Visit www.kizzy'sbooksandmore.com to purchase your next book for our book club. Use coupon code VULGARGENIUS to receive 10% off the subtotal of your first order. Hello, welcome to another episode of the Vulgar Jesus podcast. We're your hosts. My name is Denny. And I'm Veronica. And um, today on our show, we are, <laughs> we're overly excited because today's guest is Naima Coster, and she is here to talk about her novel, What's Mine and Yours. And uh, before we bring her in, we're going to just, you know, hype her up a little bit. Yep. And uh, let the people know who she is. Who she is. If you have been living under a rock, <laughs> under a rock, Come take out. it away. Come, Come out. out. Come it's, out. It's fun out here. All right. <laughs> so Naima is the author of What's Mine and Yours, an instant New York Times bestseller, as well as a read with Jenna and book of the month club pick. Her debut, Halsey Street, was a finalist for the 2018 Kirkus Prize for Fiction and long listed for the VCU Cable First Novelist Award. Naima's essays have appeared in the New York Times, Elle, Time, Quelly, the Paris Review Daily, The Cut, the Sunday Times, Catapult, and elsewhere. In 2020, she was named a National Book Foundation uh, Five Under 35 honoree. And she is currently affiliate faculty in the low residency MFA program at Antioch University in LA and lives with her family in Brooklyn, New York. So yes, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? I'm pretty good. Thank you so much for having me and for that beautiful introduction. Yep, Naima's doing all the things. (laughs) That's why I'm like, you can't, you can really, you can never miss her. She's everywhere. Yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes. I am busy. you out there in these streets. Yeah, I'm really hustling. Streets. Yes, <laughs> we, respect, we respect the hustle. Yeah. Yeah. Because we got to do it. Mm-hmm. Take up that space, Naima. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank you. I try to remind myself to do that. Yes. 
So we're, we'll do a little introduction of um, her new novel, What's Mine and Yours. So this is a, a book about a community in Piedmont of North Carolina. And there's an outrage as a county initiative draws students from the largely black east side of town into the predominantly white high school on the west. For two students, G and Noel, the integration set, sets off a chain of events that will tie their two families together in an unexpected ways over the next 20 years. This novel was something else to read. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah, we, we got some questions for you tonight. We got to unpack. <laughs> yeah, I'm so curious to hear what you what you thought. All right. So the first one on the list for us, we want to know, like, you know, just that your book has been out in the world for for a good minute. Um, how does it feel um, to have people that really embrace what minds is yours? Well, it feels amazing to have people embrace the book um, because I never count on that. Like novels are a big investment of time. There are books that I see over and over and over and over and that I know that I'm probably a target reader for that I just don't manage to pick up because life is busy. I'm tired. So I... I'm always honored when somebody chooses to spend time with my book. So that feels amazing. I think having a book out in the world feels like raw and vulnerable and exposing to you because even if the book isn't autobiography, it comes from such a deep place. So that's hard too, kind of having this like public persona and life when, you know, my heart and mind are, are out there on the page. I don't know how memoirists do it. <laughs> Ooh, yeah. I, you know, that. I, that's a that's a good point right there. Because <laughs> yeah. they're a business, right? It's not like yeah. you are, you know, writing a story of fiction. Like you're telling everything, you know. And I know that for you, you know, this drew a, a small part on what it was for your relationship with your, with your mom. So, you know, just having that out in the world even though that this book is a book of fiction you know I'm sure people will be like well tell us more we mm. want to know and mm. you're like wait you know I just wanted to let you know where yeah so I, I totally get that yeah it's like boundaries like this is why I wrote this so people don't ask any other questions <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but then people are like but well here's a point <laughs> yeah yeah totally and the vulnerability too of um having your experiences out there in the form of a book but I think, you know, like what you've done so well is you've let those experiences and feeling come in, but in a very, you know, story-like way, it's not like also in your face. And it's like, th these are the issues I want to talk about. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you wrote it very well. It's very enjoyable. And we had fun, like, ooh, wow, no, wait. <laughs> <laughs> you know, all the feelings. So I'm sure a lot of people have asked you about, the title of your book. Why was it What's Mine and Yours? I actually didn't come up with the title. Uh, my editor came up with it. So I have to give her all the credit. I think it's a wonderful title mm -hmm. that gets to the heart of the book. Um, because the book is so much about what we hold in common, but then also what 
divides us and you know those distances that can never be bridged whether that's in a segregated city or whether that's in a family or even in an intimate partnership so what's mine and yours seems to suggest closeness but I think it also has separation in there in the title and it comes from the Shakespeare play Measure for Measure which is the the play that's staged in the school in the book and so I just have to give give props to my editor for finding it because I think it really captures the spirit of the book it's are you a a Shakespeare fan were you like how can I integrate him into this novel not at all I like I've probably read more Shakespeare than I ever wanted to like as an English major and then going to grad school for literature um but I was thinking about who high school students are forced to read. Um, And I was, yeah. And I was thinking about how for myself as a young person, I felt so alienated from Shakespeare in so many ways and felt like I didn't actually understand anything I was reading, but there was also a level at which I got it. Like I couldn't translate it for you. I couldn't tell you what it meant, but I got it, which I think is so interesting. And I wanted to reflect what that's like for for high schoolers. And the play that I chose, Measure for Measure, I thought was a fitting one because it's about how people who are convinced that they're right about things are wrong um, and do damage like people with strong convictions. And so it seemed to speak to the mothers in the book and the characters in this book who are, you know, so self-righteous and still make mistakes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> they, they <made> self-righteous. <laughs> that is the correct term right there. <laughs> so you've been quoted on how Nicole Hannah Jones's work on integration in the school system helped uh, to serve as the foundation uh, for this novel that you've that you've written on, um, could you speak more on how you chose to have this be the the diving diving board that you that you chose to jump from? Yes. So when I was um, first living in North Carolina in 2015, I encountered the work of Nicole Hannah Jones. I heard reporting that she did for This American Life. It was the first time I'd heard of her, um, and I've followed her eagerly since then. And she covers the integration of the school district that Michael Brown graduated from in the Norman D. School District um, in Missouri. And in This American Life, there's this footage of an assembly where an integration effort is being disputed by parents. And I was just haunted by that audio and by the arguments that people were making because the arguments were so carefully constructed to avoid um, certain phrases that would signal racism, but they were still making such racist arguments. Um, And it felt familiar and it felt scary. And then there was also footage of a young Black girl talking about what it was like to be in that auditorium, knowing that she was going to be one of the students um, taking part in this integration program. And just listening to that, I thought, that's a novel. Like Mm -hmm. all of the different experiences of students in that school, families, the ties that are made. Um, And I think that I was drawn to it too, as someone who had educational opportunities that took me into largely white spaces. And that changed my life, but also 
like left the mark um, in a big way. And so I think that that was one of my more buried motivations that I wasn't aware of at the time, but came to the surface as I was working on the book. I was talking to Denny about this, um, the, you know, that particular part uh, where they're having that conversation happen in the school and you're listening to the things that are being said. And it makes me think about like how, you know, how you have your own belief system, right? And there are certain parts in your belief system that you think everybody, you know, everybody agrees. Like pizza is good. Everybody likes pizza, right? And then right. You meet somebody and they don't like pizza. You're like, how can this be? And I think the same in regards to when you're talking about school integration, anything that goes for the betterment of all people and how there's always somebody that is like not in my not in my city not in my backyard I don't want it it's such a complicated conversation to have right so yes you you did a, a really good job of bringing those feelings up of like how are we still here like how mm. are we still dealing with this so I, I want to say thank you and kudos to you for for taking on that feat. And yeah, what what it might have been for those students that were there, because mm. you know, like what you put on, what you put on G was like, I don't want to be here. You know, like that feeling of like, I'm I'm. It almost feels like claustrophobic, and I'm like, why is she still talking? Like this is so embarrassing. I'm just trying to disappear. Mm. And all those feelings, and yet you know that this conversation needs to be heard, but yet, you know, those students don't even feel like they deserve to be there, you know? So it's 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 all those feelings, and I'm just like, ah, I, I think when I was reading that part, I had to, like, put it down for a minute and just, like, walk and pace <laughs> and be, like, think of, like, something, like, happy in my head, because I'm just <laughs> like she's writing about the real stuff mm -hmm. we have to confront and we have to talk about it mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but thank you for making me feel all those feelings because I think more people need to feel those feelings of course thank you for that I mean I think a lot about how people can have these arguments without thinking about the people who are being discussed and who are directly affected like I think I've been in places where people are having a conversation and turn to me and expect me to agree and I'm like oh actually what you just described that's like me or like that's my family like you know and like no I don't agree um but yeah I wanted by having G's point of view in that scene I think that that's partially what gives the scene its meaning mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so speaking of G there's a conversation between G's teacher and his mom, what it means that everyone's eyes is on you. And the mother tells him off. Um, was this to show how his mother was choosing to only see him being at the school as a place where he is entitled to be just as anyone else or where, or where the teacher felt like now that you have this opportunity, you have to make the most out of it. What I was trying to get at in that scene um, is all the instructions for life that are given to young people, particularly people of color who have this unique opportunity before them, like um, talks about how to be or what to say or how to 
honor the opportunity and sort of like adults having disagreements about that. Whereas um, the young person, G, just feels this pressure and scrutiny um, and his voice doesn't really register in this conversation of what he can do with what he's been given. So I was trying to get at that. Um, I was also trying to critique this idea that I've encountered and heard, which is, you know, if people are going to try to figure out if you don't belong in a space, do what you can to prove them wrong, right? right? Like be exceptional, prove them wrong. Um, Whether that's like get A's or hide the things about yourself or your family that will confirm their ideas about you. Um, That has always been stifling to me and oppressive to me. So I definitely, you know, was trying to challenge that in writing that scene. Um, and then, you know, just being a, a teenager alone. Yeah, it's hard. That's a lot. You're just trying to navigate that part. Yeah. Of all of the other stuff on top of it, it makes it very, very complicated. And like how you are, how you choose to be seen because you want to be seen a certain a certain way right yeah so that's, that and was, how can you win <laughs> you can never you can't you can't there's you can't win this game yeah, teen- yeah. Teen- teenagers just wanted love and belongingness and then like the world was like no you gotta be better all the time be better yeah. and liked by everybody yeah so, uh, another conversation uh, that happens early on in the book um there's this like slight confrontation between um noel's friend uh um inez and the neighbors right when they're talking about this woman who's just moved into the neighborhood and she's at the pool with her with her child and she's confronted by one of the the neighborhood people um this altercation mimics a lot of what we've seen especially over the last few years regarding um, black and brown people just going about their regular life how did you want this particular scene to touch on noel's privilege yes um well i noel is an interesting character to me because she is a white presenting latina um her father's colombian her mom is white but she identifies as a person of color and interestingly she's the one of her sisters who identifies most strongly as a person of color, although she's the one who looks white. I wanted to write about um, how she tries to fly under the radar sometimes when placed under scrutiny, when her own belonging is compromised, because there are other points in the book where she's sort of like naively woke and like challenges her mother um, and tries to resist what she sees going around going on around her. And I think that that's true of a lot of people, right? Like we don't, not everybody speaks up every time they hear something problematic. Sometimes people do try to just like get along or go along. And Noel has um, sort of like a special capacity to do that because she reads as white. And so I placed her friend in that scene with her in part so that she could be challenged and have that reflected back to her yeah I really I really like that that scene because there were so many things within that conversation 
of just like how you know she chimes in and she's like y'all gonna do something about this you know something there's got to be some consequences what's going on and then also the conversation that she has I think it takes place early on when they're in the car together and she basically insinuates that she kind of passes that she knows that she's passing for white and you know Noel's kind of like why what what where is this coming from so there are a lot of dynamics within just those those few pages um Mm -hmm. and which brings me to um nelson so anyone who has not read the book you know this is probably be the time for you to (laughs) go read it come back this is about to get a lot of spoiling so there is a well-known episode um (laughs) in this american life i know that you mentioned that earlier about a black woman who uh, goes to France and uh, she spends some time in France and realizes that uh, she's not treated the same way that uh, she's treated here in America and she's able to move a lot more more freely and uh, we also know about like the same experiences that James Baldwin and, and Josephine Baker has have had uh, in their time of peace and exploration while they were in France. Um, did you have Nelson move to Paris so that he could be outside of his skin where the perception of race was different for him than it was for him when he was like navigating with here in the United States? I think that that was probably a part of it. I mean, definitely thinking about Baldwin um, and and his essay about living in Paris. Um, I think also I was thinking about Paris as a signifier of having made it, Mm -hmm. right? Like being able to go to Europe, being able to go to Paris, saying something about the point that you've gotten to in life, the money you've accrued, the opportunity. I know that when I went to Paris, it felt momentous because Paris looms so large Mm -hmm. in our popular imagination. No one in my family had been to Europe and it felt like a symbol of um, the ways that my life had taken a different trajectory and class mobility um, and all of these things. So I was thinking about that too, um, because this is also, I think, a story about what, um, what people are able to achieve despite hardship and difficulty early in life, but also how that hardship and difficulty still gets carried mm-hmm. with you, even even to Paris. Even to Paris. <laughs> and I hide from it, especially yeah. in Paris. <laughs> <laughs> there were moms, a lot of moms in the a lot of moms yeah. <laughs> in, in, in this story. I am a mom, so I, so at some points, I'm like feeling, you know, the feelings of one person, and I'm like, oh, you might be right, oh, you might be wrong, <laughs> but, but, I say all of that to for this question: Is it easy to say that simply because Jade and Lacey are mothers, and tend to be slightly controlling, that they could be seen to be somewhat similar? But for you, they're actually not mirrors, but the opposite of each other. So, you know, for for our readers and to maybe explore that side more, in what ways were the, these women different? Yeah, I think this is a great question and a really fraught one, um, because I think that there's a lot that the two women 
have in common, but I hesitate to be like, they're both women who get it wrong um, because Lacey May is racist and opposes integration. And that's like a really different kind of harmful wrong than Jade. So I like want to resist that, like, ah, you know, everybody has their opinions, like nobody's quite right. Like definitely don't want to make their stances equal. Like Jade is right when it comes to the issue of integration. Like she is right. Like all of the children should have access to this quality education um, and their zip code and class and race should not um, determine the quality of their education. So that's a way that they're different, right? Like Lacey May wants to hoard opportunity and, and Jade wants to make sure that her son isn't denied opportunity. I think what they do have in common is that they're women who feel that they have thwarted potential. Um, Jade, because she became a mother quite young um, and then loses her partner. And Lacey May, because she's never really had work or a life beyond the roles of mother and wife. And then her husband struggles with addiction and is in and out of her life. So they're both women who want their children to go further than they did. And they become so obsessed with that, Mm -hmm. that they don't always respect or listen to their children. They alienate their children. Um, So that's something that they have in common. Um, But I don't think that they're the same woman they just live on opposite sides of town. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, or you talked about how Jade lost her partner and his name is Ray. Uh, Ray described G as hesitant as if he didn't expect to get the things he wanted. As brown and black people, how can we overcome such thinking that we don't deserve the good things that come to our lives? Oof, what a question. I was like, I just wanted to ask her, you know, it's like when we, when we talk to like authors, we all, we always see them like as somebody that, you know, to us have made it because mm. you like, you have a book in the world, like people know you by name, you know, mm. like you see yourselves like in shelves in Target, you're in Amazon. <laughs> so it's like, this is somebody, you know, that, that has, that, that did it. And when, mm. when we see you and like, when, you know, when kids would see you and other people of color would see them like, yeah, you know, so it's okay to take up space. Yes. And we're out here, like our voices are being heard. So I'm like, how do we, how do we, I guess, go about that way of like, we, we deserve this. It's okay. It's okay yeah. to wish this opportunity and space. Yeah. Well, I'll say this is something that I struggle with, but is important to me, right? It's probably why I write about it. Um, I have a few ideas. Um, I think that something that I've learned to do is to do things that I think honor my worth, even when it's uncomfortable. Like, I don't always feel good about doing right by myself, but I try to do it anyway. Like, so whether that's like saying no, when I want to say no, even if it makes me uncomfortable to say no, or asking for money for something, or um, setting a boundary in a relationship, like even if it feels uncomfortable, I try to do it anyway. So I know that also, you know, knowing I deserve things doesn't mean I no longer feel 
anxious and I just start feeling really entitled, it might still feel that I don't deserve it, but I do it anyway. And I think that this is a situation where like fake it till you make it can be helpful. Like, you know, like you keep having the experience of asking for what you deserve and that shapes your life versus then versus always accepting less. I think having supportive people in my life um, and avoiding toxic relationships or ending toxic relationships is really helpful, like to be treated with love and respect. I think the ways that we are treated inevitably shape how we feel about ourselves. So, um, you know, like surrounding myself with people who like cheer me on and love me and like respectfully call me on my shit. Can I say that? Like, you know, like, um, that's really important too. And like people who can like hold on to my value when it's difficult for me and I try to do it for them too. Um, So I think that that comes to mind. Like um, I think also knowing that, yeah, like that feeling, sometimes our feelings can lead us astray, which I think is a tricky thing to say. I've, I've written about this. I wrote about this for the cut, um, how I hate being told to trust my gut. Um, or to follow my feelings. And I'm like, well, you know, like sometimes my feelings like lead me astray because like of the complicated relationship I have to my body and my mind, like as someone who lives with trauma, like I can't always trust my feelings. Um, So um, that's something that I try to do that even if I feel like I don't deserve something, I try not to just be driven by the feeling. My my sister's old English college professor always would tell her, like, when people say you got to trust your gut, I just listen to my gut. Like, the only thing your gut is telling you that you're hungry. Like, yeah. That's, that's yeah. It. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> um, mental health is often not seen as a priority within minority communities. When it comes to things like trauma, we understand that without the proper support, many people will continue to struggle. Um, long after the traumatic experience has happened. Do you think that who Nelson became um, would have changed if he had gotten therapy? Do you think that his and Jay's relationship would have gotten better because of it as well? Um, I think probably, although I can't say how, you know, I can't say how, but I think that like support and a good therapist are always good things like um, those opportunities for processing and healing for sure would in terms of what that would mean and whether he and Jade would have no conflict, right? Like no residue from the trauma. Like I, I'm not really interested in writing like clean 180 stories, you know, or um, you know, I think that Nelson's story, I don't see it as a, a, bleak or grim story at all. I think that it's a story of tremendous triumph and meaning and growth and of loss. Um, That's how I see it. And I know that not everybody sees it that way. Um, But I think a lot about this sort of like how difficult childhoods form us and like how what we can recuperate and then like what we can't, but like we go on living anyway. Right. Yeah. Because right. it, it kind of like shapes you also, you know, like all those challenges, you kind of learn from it. Other people, 
become stronger because of it mm. and you know we all are we all have our flaws we're not perfect and i think that's what makes like this story really rich is because you see you know imperfect people but still trying to make of what they have and you can see like also like you know he is in paris and he's like doing all those like photographs and stuff but in his heart there's still something that is really missing so we can't have it all Mm-hmm. unfortunately but I think that's what drives passion and creativity as well mm-hmm. yeah and I think that with G I was in particular really interested in showing like what happens when you learn that strength is putting away difficult feelings because I think that's what he learns you know like the grief that he and Jade feel is so immense that they feel like they have to put it away so it doesn't derail their lives that's something that I've certainly seen um, in people I know and I understand that impulse I've had that impulse before but I don't think you can actually put a lid on grief (laughs) you know like it um, it comes out some way somehow so I think that that is partially what complicates his experience and troubles his relationships you know all of the things that he is putting away make it really difficult for him um, to be known more deeply. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But we've seen a G everywhere. Like you know, you would know you would know a G. Like I've dated G. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard that actually from some readers. Yeah, yeah. No, no. I, totally. I didn't know that I was sitting next to Noel in here. <laughs> no, <Nah, I'm> <laughs> <laughs> that, that was a loaded statement. <laughs> so going back to like the story in your mind, where did this all start from? Did you already have these characters in your mind, and you know the big reveal like at the end um, of you know spoiler alert again pause and return. <laughs> Nelson and G is like the same person or you know did it start from somewhere else so it's interesting I feel like this book is three different projects that ended up rolled into one like I wrote a short story about Lacey May um as a woman who was just struggling to keep the heat on for her girls while her husband was away, um, feeling trapped in the role of motherhood, really consumed with survival, but like a fierce champion for her girls. I just wrote that as a standalone short story. I didn't say to myself, this is a woman who opposes school integration. Like I just like, you know, that's not how she came to me. Um, She came to me as a woman, you know, between a rock and a hard place. And so I, I wrote that story. I put it away. And then I knew that I wanted to write a story about a woman wondering if she was pregnant after losing her partner and that difficult situation of the possibility of a a tether connection to someone you've loved who you've lost but also like the tremendous like difficulty of that and going through that alone so I knew I wanted to write I had written about one woman and I knew I wanted to write about the other woman and then I also had this idea for a novel about a community affected by school integration and then I thought, well, why don't I put these two women in this book and see what happens? And once they were in the book, I knew that I only really wanted to write about them and their families. I thought that the book would be more of a mosaic and write about the life of a city. And then once I started writing, I thought, 
no, I'm just going to focus on these two women. And then it became about their children, um, specifically G and Noel. So the book surprised me. When when you wrote this story, were you still living in North Carolina at the time or you had already left? So when I wrote the story about Lacey May, I was living in North Carolina, but I didn't start the book until right after I left, like a month after I left North Carolina, I started What's Mine and Yours. Um, So I lived in Durham for three years. So the city was really fresh to me. The landscape was really fresh to me. I missed it. Um, And so I didn't start writing until I left. But I'd spent, you know, my time there kind of like accumulating bits and scraps and putting together notes. So um, we have several questions and one of them is, um, how did you find out that one, your book was going to be picked up by by Jenna Bush? And then um, how did you find out when it hit the New York Times bestselling list? I'm always interested in like, is there a phone call? Like, did you wake up at five o'clock in the morning and find out? <laughs> yeah. So some news I get told by email, but then if it's like very exciting, I get a phone call. So (laughs) for Read with Jenna, I think um, I got a text from my editor um, who was like, are you free for a FaceTime? And then I did a FaceTime with my editor, my agent and my publicist, and they were all just like over the moon. And I was too. So that was really, really exciting. and the read with Jenna book club pick was just so cool. Like she was, she loved the book. She brought it, I know, to lots of different readers who maybe wouldn't have been aware of it. So that was just like amazing. Um, and then the New York Times bestseller list. It's a great story, I think, because how I found out is very not glamorous. I was at the playground with my daughter um, and I knew the list was coming out that day and that it was a possibility that we'd be on the list but I wasn't banking on it in any way and so I got a FaceTime from my editor but like I couldn't really talk to her because my daughter who's under two was just like throwing herself like off the (laughs) jungle you know like I was just trying to keep her from injuring herself and so I was just like okay this is great I gotta go I gotta go (laughs) Um, and so it didn't sink in at all like I was just consumed with making sure my child was safe and she didn't care she was just like mommy like help me like help me get up the stairs um and then I put her on a bench so that like she could have an applesauce snack like just that I could get a minute to like have it sink in um and then I like then it hit me and I was like whoa who was the first person after you found out that you told who was the first person you told that news to um I told my husband um, I waited until I called him and I was like, where are you? <laughs> um, and then I waited until we were in person to tell him. Oh, that's awesome. I'm just curious. How old is your daughter? She's almost two. Oh, yeah. wow. Cause that's, I feel that that's also, I think the same age as my son. He's almost. Oh two. yeah. Well, it's all the attention. <laughs> yeah. So oh my I gosh. Just, I understand of like that feeling of like, Mommy just got something big. Yeah. Sit down. It's <laughs> so mommy can concentrate. Yeah, totally. But also, like, you know, her like, I don't care what just happened for mommy. I'm trying to go down the slide. So can yeah. you assist me, mommy? <laughs> like, you know. Come first. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so um, 
since we were talking about the happy moments, bring us back to the time when you found out that you were um, one of the 535 nominees for the National Book Foundation. How did I find that out? Oh, I got a, I got a phone call from Lisa Lucas, um, who at the time was executive director of the National Book Foundation. Um, and it was amazing. Like I knew something was up when she was like, can we talk? Because we'd never spoken before. So I was like, I wonder what it is. Um, but I was amazed. It, it happened like a few months before I turned 35, actually. So I felt like I got in like right under the wire. Like, um, and then I was just especially moved that it was Tayari Jones who selected me. Like the, the 535 was an honor, but that she was the person who chose me was especially an honor because I really admire her and her writing. Well, congratulations on that. Thank um, you. Those- Going into the future, we've talked about the past and everything and what's going on in your life. In September, um, there will be a new anthology to hit the shelves, uh, Wild Tongues Can't Be Tamed, uh, 15 Voices from the Latinx uh, Diaspora. Can you tell us a little bit about this book and how you came to work on this on this project? Yes. So this book is interesting because I think that it's meant to fit in some sort of space between YA and adult like it's meant to speak to adult readers who want to pick up this book but I think it's also supposed to speak to young adults and younger readers which is really cool um, and is not my audience primarily although I write about young people in what's mine and yours and I think both of my novels are coming of age novels they're not YA they're for grownups. Um, but um, I think it's a cool opportunity to parse through a whole range of different questions and issues related to Latinx identity. Um, and in my essay called The Price of Admission, what I write about is sort of related to what we've been talking about in this conversation about um, what is expected of people of color, particularly um, immigrants or descendants of immigrants when we enter this country or enter predominantly white spaces, which is why it's called The Price of Admission. And it's a story about my slow coming to reject the idea that I have to be a good girl, a good student, a good daughter of immigrants. Um, And like I write about ways that I upheld that and what that cost me um, and how I've been trying to unlearn it and how important it is for me to do what I can so that my daughter is a little freer yeah. than I am. A lot freer, a lot freer. I, <laughs> yeah. I felt that. I was just like, you're preaching to the choir, Naima. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and also like in being, uh, you know, you wanted them to be a lot freer, but also like, may you also get free in that because you got yes. to handle how free they become. Mm. And you know, you sometimes can't always because sometimes I don't have any children. I have nieces and nephews, and I'm like, who said you could do that? <laughs> yeah. You do that now? Yeah. <laughs> you, know, you could do that. Okay. All right. So. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. That's such a good point. I love that. Um, so for for the readers and you know, for people that are listening. Um, what would you want them to take away, like the greatest takeaway for for reading your novel? Mm-hmm. 
Well, I'd say that I think this is a book about how our choices determine the shape of our lives and how even small choices really matter. Um, and I think that that is empowering for me um, as someone who sometimes feels constrained by society, by my own brain and body and history. Like I think about the character of G and I think about him as a sensitive, anxious young man and his choice to do a play and how it's a small choice, but it's actually a remarkable act of courage that changes his life. It gives him his relationship with Noel. It gives him a sense of his own power and authority over his life as opposed to his mom having that power and his participation in the play is what ultimately leads him to change his name and create a new identity so I think that that's one of the takeaways it's true in thinking about the mistakes and the missteps of the moms too right like what we choose like shapes our children's lives too and the lives of our communities so I think that in that takeaway, there's like a caution, but also a tremendous, I think, hope. Um, so I think that that is something I hope readers take away. We definitely took away, took a lot. Now, this book is full of just beautiful written um, words that everybody just needs to absorb into their skin, into their heart, you know, like live in this book is definitely one that you can definitely reread and get a lot of other things that you may have missed the first time you've, you've read it. Yeah. And a lot of talk about with other people too, you mm-hmm. know, it gives, it gives a chance for dialogue. Yeah. And like, like you said, like the simple fact of like changing your name changes like your whole being and, you know, like how sometimes when like teenagers would like, you know, you, you have to call me like this way and how, or sometimes how important our given name is to us too. Mm-hmm. You know, those, those like little choices that we make direct like what life we, we, we choose. Mm-hmm. And it can make or break a person. It can catapult you to greatness or it can make you stagnant and just be here. Mm-hmm. Power of a word. Mm-hmm. So um, speaking of power of the word, we want to know your top five books that have empowered you that you love, be it your top favorite or your favorite that you're excited that's coming out. So All right. Your top five. Top five. All right. Let's do this. Um, well, I'll do it with the caveat that some of these would change probably if you asked me yesterday or asked me tomorrow because <laughs> some wouldn't. Um, but some would, cause there are a lot of books that have been really important to me. Um, I'll start with, uh, the eyes are watching God by Zora Neale Hurston. Um, tattoo because, Oh, do you really, what's the tattoo? Will you share? It's like a hieroglyphic of like different parts. So it's like a boat, a bee with a, with a pollen, like mm. pollinating a flower. Mm. It's a whole thing. Yes. I love it. Yes. Yeah. It's my favorite book. Um, it's probably the book I've reread the most often um, that meant so much to me and still does. Um, 
yeah, it blew my mind. Actually, it didn't blow my mind when I first read it because I was like 14 and I was like, oh, that's pretty good. And then <laughs> I was like, not bad. Um, and then I read it again, I think in my late teens or early 20s. And I thought, this book is amazing. Um, and I think it is about a woman who wants to be free and wants to be loved. And I love the ending of that book. Um, all of the the love that she's gained and the faith in herself and her friend who's with her. Um, and her, you have the sense that her whole life is before her, um, mm. despite everything that she's lost. Um, so I love that book. The Eyes Are Watching God for sure. Um, Salvage the Bones by Jasmine Ward is a book that I love and have also read multiple times. Um, I love the character of Esh. I love her mind. I love the richness of the language. I love this family story. Um, it's just incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, I love that book. What was that, Denny? You can write. <laughs> oh, she sure can. She yeah. sure can. Um, she knows how to work a sentence for sure. Um The Glass Castle by Jeanette Walls is a book that I really love um, and like read really quickly. Um, And it's like, you know, like a really difficult, um, twisted family story that I really valued for its honesty and I... um, the ways that it reflected back to me elements of my family story, um, although my family story is certainly different. Um, it was just an important book. Like it was one of those books that to me made me feel sort of like less alone mm-hmm. um, and strange and some of the things that we're more quiet about. Um, so I love that book. Um, and I guess two others that I'll share um, that are more recent, um, but I love um, Cantoras by Carolina de Robertis, which is about five queer women living under the dictatorship in Uruguay and this community that they create for themselves, this chosen family. Um, they escape to this remote beach town whenever they can to be with one another. And it's a beautiful story of family um, and friendship and love and then um, Dominicana by Angie Cruz which is also more recent and is the story of a very young bride and very young mother who makes her way in New York City Um, and it's also an amazing story of one woman coming into her own power and I love Angie Cruz she's was a very important writer to me oh see now I'm thinking of more books that I couldn't make name but we'll stop we'll stop there we'll stop there (laughs) (laughs) well we don't want to hold you any longer than we have and we want to just say thank you so much for for coming on to our our show and talking about your book and we hope for uh, many many other books to come out of that wonderful mind of yours for us to read and so Yeah, because we have been watching you since Halsey Street came out because our book club started in 2020. And I'm like, oh, let's look at, you know, the um, the winners, like, you know, or the nominees of like the 535 was just released. And I'm like, oh, Naima Coster. And I'm like, you know, maybe maybe someday we get a chance to talk to her. And here we are. And here we are. Oh, I love that. Well, thank you for the support. Thank you for inviting me. Um, I'm excited to see you all doing what you're doing. And I'm going to stay tuned. So thank you for including me. Thank you for being here and answering our our DMs. (laughs) 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 Yeah, well, I'm glad that you did. 
So thank you so much. You take care, okay? Thank you. Thank you. I'm Naima. Be safe and have a good night. Thank you so much. Yeah, you too. It was my pleasure. Take good care. Bye. 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 We hope you enjoyed our show. Follow us on Instagram at Vulgar Geniuses Book Club. Our theme song was produced by Sean Kantrowitz. Follow him on Instagram and Twitter at Sean Dammit. That's spelled S-E-A-N-D-A-M-M-I-T. Make sure to like, comment, and subscribe to our podcast on Anchor, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. See you next time. Deuces.